really thankful to be here um, and, and having the opportunity to, to teach with you, uh, teach for you and to you uh, this, this morning. Um, today, I, I get the privilege of beginning a short sermon series um, that's going to be a collective effort uh, between some of our leaders uh, up, up at, at, at Freedom Village, uh, working through the themes of Advent. And today, as uh, was mentioned when we were lighting the candle, the topic today is hope. And so if you have a Bible uh, with you today, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you uh, to turn with me to the book of Lamentations. Uh, Lamentations chapter 3. Yes. And kids are dismissed. All right. Book of Lamentations. Specifically Lamentations chapter 3. Uh, Lamentations chapter 3. Um, I'm sure all of you expected me to ask you to turn to Lamentations. We're talking about hope. A Lamentations Christmas. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with the book of Lamentations, um, it's a heavy book. Uh, and, and by that I mean uh, it's not an easy read. Uh, it's uncomfortable. It's dark. Um, some have called it uh, the most depressing book in, in all of uh, the scriptures. You see, Lamentations is all about uh, God's wrath, His judgment, and, and our sin. And I don't have time to go through all the historical and, and spiritual uh, context of the book, but just to give us a, a really quick snapshot of this, we know here, when we enter into Lamentations, Jerusalem has been totally destroyed. Um, they've been devastated. See, God had warned them, the people of Israel, specifically the city of Jerusalem, warned them time and time again, if you don't turn from your idols, if you don't turn from yourselves, if you don't turn from your sin, that there will be consequences. Consequences are coming. Uh, but of course, the people don't turn. Uh, they continue to follow their own passions. They continue to go after their own desires. And so, uh, Lamentations records uh, the horrifying defeat of Jerusalem. God brings his divine discipline upon his people after centuries, actually, of, of warning them. Um, and, and, and a lot of patience on his, on his behalf. And, and what happens to God's people here is, um, in my opinion, but I, I think it's fair to say, this is the most severe event recorded in the Old Testament, the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. Uh, we know in this year, in this time, the Babylonian army comes. They decimate, totally flatten Jerusalem. More than that, they actually set everything on fire. They kill thousands upon thousands of people. Um, but beyond that, they capture thousands more. And in that, we know that God's people felt like it was a complete severing from God's promises. Um, it felt like a complete loss um, of their identity. It was just totally devastating. And it's out of that devastation, it's out of that ruin. Uh, it, it's out of that grief that we get the cry of Lamentations. Lamentations, to sum it up, is just this communal expression, this, this outcry of pain that rises out of the aftermath of Jerusalem's destruction. And so that's just the really brief context of the book. And we see that pain so clearly in the first two chapters of the book, specifically. The author writes things like this. 
Um, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. He says, look and see if there's any sorrow like our sorrow. Or how the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. Or, or this is heavy. My eyes are spent with weeping, he says, chapter 2. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of, this, of the destruction of the daughter of my people. So there is severe hardship, um, a true, genuine sorrow happening. But then, through all of that suffering, we turn to chapter 3. And what we learn here in chapter 3 is that, bottom line, there is hope. There is hope. And so today, uh, we're going to get some serious help when it comes to learning how to face difficulty, how to, live, uh, uh, to get through and navigate through seasons of disappointment, and how to work through our pain. Because this text that we're going to be wrestling with this morning actually tackles the question, how do we not only survive, um, but how do we actually spiritually thrive in the midst of our suffering? It speaks to us about our thought lives in seasons of pain and what should guide our hearts when we fight with daily struggles. And that's what today is all about. And let me just say this as well. Um, times of, of pain and, and sorrow are revealing uh, because they reveal not only who we are, but also what we believe about God. And so I really believe that today is going to be enlightening, uh, but also revealing in a healthy way. Uh, this text should help us to uncover our hearts. And that's at least my, my prayer for us anyway. And so with that, we now open to chapter 3. And, and I want us to, to notice, first and foremost, the difference between how the destruction of Jerusalem is viewed in the beginning of this chapter versus or as opposed to the end of it. Look at how chapter 3 starts. The author says this, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. Or in verse 18, the author says, My endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. So we once again see the deep-seated pain here. Okay, and by the way, if you take the time, and I encourage you to do that, do that uh, this this week, actually, is read through chapters 1 and 2. It's not easy to do, but try it. Okay? And what you'll see is that this is just an echo uh, of chapters 1 and chapters 2. There is this uh, raw wrestling with what God has done. Uh, the judgment of God has become personal and overwhelming, such so that, that, that there seems to be no peace. And the author gets to the point where he says, my hope is gone. There is, there is no hope. The grief of the moment that Jerusalem is facing, the people that they are facing is relentless. 
But then, then, things take an interesting turn. Because compare that to the end of the chapter. And we have to be mindful here. I think this is so important before I even read this verse. We have to be mindful that, that circumstantially, nothing has actually changed. Okay, um, The city is still destroyed. Um, there's smoke rising from the city. The people are still in pain. But look at the significant shift that happens. He goes on to say, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High God that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain a man about the punishment of his sins. And then look at verses 55 through 58. I called on your name, O Lord. From the depths of the pit, you heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. And look at it. You have redeemed my life. And so... Do you hear and feel the, the difference there? There's still pain here. It's still present. There's still struggle in the text, but the tone has actually changed. There's a notable movement of this author's heart here, and that leads us to a very important, a very significant question, one that is central to chapter 3, central to the entire book of Lamentations, actually, and that is, what has changed? Why this sudden hope? Again, the situation hasn't changed. Uh, the circumstances have not shifted. There's still pain and anguish. Jerusalem has been ruined. God's temple is destroyed. The presence of the Lord is removed from his people. Families have been separated. Countless people have died. But the attitude and perspective has taken a sudden and surprising shift. So again, what changed? Well, we enter into verse 21. And verse 21 is actually the pivot point of the entire book, or pivot point of the entire book, and helps us to answer this question of what changed. The author writes this, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. I want us to, to notice a, a few things in this verse. Remember, and I'm saying this uh, again and again and again, but there is real pain and suffering being experienced here. And then seemingly out of nowhere, we get the word, but. And, and that word is key. It's key here. He says, but this I call to mind. Call to mind. It's a Hebrew word, uh, uh, one that means return, or maybe better or more significant, it means remember. And it's doing that from the very core or the center of your being. This is all about the heart. In other words, this is talking about rehearsing or recalling what one truly believes in the depths of their being. And apparently, this calling to mind creates a hope within him. You see that there in the text. And I have to say here as well, this is really important, that the way that we use hope in our culture, it is so different than the way that the Bible or the scriptures talk about hope. See, when we use the word 
hope, we are usually talking about or using it in the context of wishful thinking. Like for me personally, um, I really hope the Buffalo Bills win the Super Bowl. I really hoped that the Yankees won the World Series. They haven't for a while. Okay? I hope. I, I really hope. I don't like the cold at all. Okay? I really hope the weather is good this winter. And so, okay? that's wishful thinking. But, but biblical hope is more of a, it's a confident expectation. Okay? It's a confident expectation. And that's because biblical hope is not based on my circumstances or situation. Biblical hope is based on a person. Which means hope is not attached to my situation. It's not attached to my circumstances, but the one that I am putting my hope in. See that? The author of Lamentations is devastated. It is a hopeless situation. He actually says just before chapter 3, I'm hopeless. There's no hope. There's no doubting that. And yet, we see here now, he chooses hope anyway. He, he looks forward in hope by looking back at God's character. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute, what he calls to mind. But for now, I simply want you to realize the significance of this year. That Lamentations is leading us towards this very important and very practical truth. That when life becomes difficult, when life brings you hardship, when life brings you pain and challenges, hope can still be had and found. Why? Because hope is not rooted in what you see. Hope is not rooted in what you feel. Hope is rooted and found in what you believe, or better, who you believe in. And I want us to understand how significant that is for us and what that means. See, what this means is that it is possible to actually lead our hearts. It is possible for you to actually lead your mind to hope. We can actually do that by returning to the truth. Some of you might have heard of a famous pastor and theologian. His name is A.W. Tozer. Perhaps you've read some of his works in your life? If not, you should. Okay, I encourage you to read E.W. Tozer. Put his stuff on your bookshelf. But one of the things that he said uh, that has stuck with me throughout my life is this idea that what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I'll say that again. E.W. Tozer, he once said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And why? Why would that be? Well, because whatever you believe about God will ultimately shape and form your reality. Whatever you believe about God will determine not only how you see yourself, but also how you see your present circumstances. And that's precisely what we see here in Lamentations 3. God, I am broken. God, I feel lost. God, I... I don't understand what you're doing. Why are you allowing this to happen to me? God, I feel empty. I, I'm hopeless. I just don't understand. But, but, this I call to mind. And therefore, I have hope. And so what is the this here? What is he calling to mind? What does he recall to find hope in the middle of his suffering? 
Well, there are three, I believe, three heart-changing truths here that I want to show you. So first of all, what does the author call to mind to bring him hope? Number one, we see God's unending mercy and his steadfast love. How do you find hope in all circumstances? Call to mind God's unending mercy and his steadfast love. So you want to not just survive, you want to thrive in the midst of your pain and suffering? Call to mind God's unending mercy and his steadfast love. And we get this from the most familiar book, or sorry, familiar verse in all the book of Lamentations, thanks to a very well-known hymn. It was actually made famous by Billy Graham. Verses 22 through 23 says this, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. And then you know this. Great is your faithfulness. These are stunning verses when you study them, when you meditate on them, especially when you consider the context here. You would expect this to be written like in the book of Philippians, for example, which is all about joy. Okay, or more maybe in the midst of you know, revival. This is found in the middle of the book of Lamentations, like the weeping book, the depressing book of the Bible. The author has every reason to question, actually. He has the right, in some regards, at least from our earthly standpoint, to, to question God's love, to question God's mercy. Right? Should I remind you, again, that everything has been destroyed Everything is ruined, but he doesn't let his present circumstances determine for him what is true. Now, as we look at verse 22, we see here that he actually, he's trying to emphasize a specific point. And so he, in a lot of ways, says the exact same thing in two different ways. First, he says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ends. Steadfast love. That phrase there is an extremely significant phrase in the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word hesed. You should know that word. You should have that word memorized. It's covenantal love. It's a word that describes God's faithfulness, his, his deep, um, unending, unchanging love for his people. It's, it's a love that is rooted in the essence of his Godhead, his being. It's a love that is unwavering. It's a love that's unshifting. It's a love that never ends. It never stops. It, it's ongoing. And because it's a covenantal love, this is good for us, good news for us, because it's a covenantal love, it means that it's not conditional it, or, or dependent on our works or our love. It's not conditioned on our morality or our faithfulness. This love is entirely dependent on God's supreme grace and his supreme mercy. And then we see there, at least in the English, we get a little semicolon there, and he says, his mercies never come to an end. And this is very similar to him referring to God's steadfast love, but mercy here is more related to God's compassion. The nuance is slightly changed. God's kindness, that God... Uh, the, the reality is that God moves towards us, though we haven't earned it, though we don't deserve it. And the good news is, there is no bottom to this merciful kindness. It just keeps flowing towards us. So putting this together, we might say, 
God has this, if you will, this warehouse, this storehouse that is filled with mercy and unwavering steadfast love. And it never runs dry. It never goes empty. And beyond that, this love and mercy, he says, it is new every morning. It literally means um, this mercy and his steadfast love, it's fresh. That's a better word in English, actually. It's fresh every new day. Every single day, it's fresh. You don't get stale love with the Lord. That's what he's saying. Every morning, there's fresh provision, fresh love, fresh grace, because we need them every single day. And so the author of Lamentations to that says, keeping all that in mind, he then says, declares actually, great is your faithfulness. And let me just say this, in English, uh, great, that word great, like hope, can mean so many things, right? Like, oh, you really need to go over to that restaurant over there, down there right? just off the basis. New restaurant opened up, we have great burgers, right? You said that, right? Or, I'm a sports guy, right? In sports, that was a great play, right? But in the scriptures, great is a lot more significant than that. It, it means abundant. It means abounding. And, and by the way, I'm not expecting you to write all this down or, or memorize all these definitions. I just want you to be overwhelmed, overwhelmed by God today, okay? Our God is abounding in faithfulness. He is absolutely and constantly loyal to those who are his. He never gives up on his children. He is utterly and completely faithful. Psalm 36, 5 says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, it extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness goes up to the clouds. And so in light of all of this, the author of Lamentations sums up this short section by saying this in verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Bottom line, he gets to the end of himself in some ways, and he says, he looks out at his circumstance, and, and, and most Old Testament scholars believe that this book was written as, uh, as the author is sitting up on the hillside watching Jerusalem burn. Totally feeling of abandonment. And it is real. And now he gets to the point, and he says, the Lord is my portion, meaning this. The Lord is all I have. And he literally means it. Not just spiritually. Physically for him as well. The Lord is all I have. I am living on God's grace and God's grace alone. He is my treasure. He is my reward. So, so this is what God is like. And, and therefore, we should let his unending, merciful, steadfast, loving faithfulness grow hope in us. And if you don't feel, even emotionally, if you don't feel hope in considering these things, recall and consider these truths about God until you do. Because it's the only thing that can actually give you true and lasting hope. So listen, in the, in the midst of pain, and those seasons are coming, <laughs> Those difficult trial and trying seasons will come. In the midst of those times, maybe you're there now, we must remember or remind ourselves 
that God's mercy never ends. His faithfulness is greater than my faithlessness. His forgiveness is greater than my sin. And his mercy is greater than what we deserve. Therefore, therefore, our hope in the midst of trials and suffering is not ultimately a change of our circumstances, but based on the unending mercy and steadfast love of God. Our second heart-changing truth, something we can recall to thrive in the midst of our suffering, number two, our waiting is not a waste. Our waiting, our waiting is not a waste. Something that you can't see in the English translation there, I don't believe it's in the Korean as well, when I, when I checked with some people up in, up in Seoul. But something you can't see in the English translation is the fact that verses 25 through 27 all actually begin with the same word. Same word in Hebrew, it's the same word good. Verse 25, 26, 27. By the way, this is a poem. Okay, so every word or every verse, 25, 26, 27, starts with that word good. So obviously, the author wants to let us know here that something is good here. Something is very good. Enough to repeat it three times, which is number of completion, by the way, as well. There's significance here. And so, what is that good thing? Well, look at verse 25. It says this. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So what is good? The author tells us to wait on the Lord, to wait for him. In other words, to place our hope in him. And just so we are clear with the context, that phrase, salvation of the Lord, it is actually not in regards to our eternal salvation. Okay? That's not what he's talking about. The, the context here is rescue from challenging circumstances. It's rescue from difficult situations. Okay, it's, it's about deliverance from our pain. It's about deliverance from our, our earthly, even, our earthly suffering. So the author is saying, it is good that we, or one, should wait to be rescued from difficult circumstances. It's good to trust in the one who can deliver you from your present situation. Psalm 62 one says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Again, that word deliverance. We wait upon the Lord because he is God and we are not. And isn't it that reality which makes waiting so difficult? I don't know about you, but waiting feels as if you are doing nothing. I am not a very patient person, something that God is still refining in me. Um, but when we wait, we are actually doing one of the greatest things a follower of Jesus can do. Because waiting requires putting your trust, your hope, and your confidence in the Lord. Because understand, uh, as well with this, that waiting isn't just this like passive sitting. I think sometimes when we think like wait, we think like waiting room in a doctor. You just sit there and you pick up a magazine you don't care about. And you just wait. That's not the waiting here. It's not twiddling your thumbs. It's not looking at your watch, wondering why God isn't showing up in your life. To, to wait on the Lord is all about a prayerful and a faithful posture of your heart. To wait on the Lord, it, it means to have a deep trust. It's, it's hope. 
it's again this confident assurance that God will change our circumstances until he does change our circumstances. Amen? And that, and that isn't me saying that waiting is easy, right? Again, personally, I, I can't stand waiting, but, but God in his infinite wisdom has built waiting into our experience of him. Psalm 27 says, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Or Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, many of us know this verse. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Meaning, listen now, our waiting, again, our waiting is not a waste. That actually, part of our waiting is connected to our experience of God's goodness. That's, that's what the author is saying to us here. So don't miss this. One of the painful realities of our suffering, our seasons of pain, is the waiting that comes along with it. But, but, if God's providence requires you to wait, remind your heart that there is so much good that can come out of waiting for the Lord. There are so many lessons that the Lord desires to teach us through our waiting. Things that ultimately draw us closer to Him and to looking like Him. I mean, think about the entire, the entire narrative of, of the Scriptures from the very beginning uh, to, to the end. There's a lot of waiting. right? Abraham and Sarah waited 25 years for their promised child, Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah waited 20 years to have Jacob and Esau. David waited 15 years to be appointed as king. He, he was called, he was chosen, he was told, you're the king. 15 years later, he gets appointed as king. Or Moses, Moses waited 40 years, 40 years to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. I'm not talking about the time in the desert. I'm talking about before that. Forty years he waits. Listen, God didn't call Moses back into Egypt to lead the people out until he was in his 80s. His 80s. So again, in the midst of your pain, in seasons of suffering, preach to your hearts that waiting upon the Lord is not a waste. God's trying to do something in you. He's trying to do something through you. Well, the final truth that I believe needs to be rehearsed to thrive in our seasons of suffering is found in verses 31 through 33. It says there, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And here we go. Listen. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. There's a lot there, a lot to take in. But what we ultimately learn and should learn from this text is a simple but profound truth. It's easy to say, harder to believe. And that is that God is always good. It's our third and final heart-changing truth today. God is always good. The author is now addressing what we believe about the future. He actually pivots a little bit. He's talking about present reality, looking back. Now there's a future sense of this now. Because, you see, part of the grief of suffering 
is the fear that it will never end. Some of you have been there before. You've been in a season of pain. You've been in times of trial. And, and part of the suffering, part of the pain that you're experiencing in those moments is, it feels like it's just going to go on forever. You're always just going to suffer, right? That's part of the, the issue. Or that, my, or that even beyond that, you're in the middle of suffering. Maybe you have a physical ailment. You know, God isn't coming through. You, you believe you should have been healed. Or are you really real, God? Or why did you allow my family member to pass? Or this loved one who doesn't know Christ? Or, you know, you believe that your suffering has no real or lasting purpose. Which is why we recall the truth that is found in verse 31. Again, it says, For the Lord will not cast off forever. He will, it's a promise, He will, future tense, He will have compassion. That's so encouraging. What He is telling us there is that all suffering has a purpose, but not only that, all of our suffering has a limit. There's a limitation to your suffering. It has an end date, if you will. There's an alarm okay, for your suffering. It's going to go off and end. This reminds us that God has a plan for his people. That he is full of compassion that is rooted, again, in his unending love. There's that connection there, his steadfast love. And beyond that, what this text tells us, specifically in verse 33, is that all of the destruction, the chaos, the ruin, that God had brought upon his people did not come from a heart that enjoys the pain that was brought upon his people. Not at all. God was not in heaven, in other words. Never is. Taking delight in the disciplining of his children. Rather, he is doing all of this because of his loving purposes. He could not allow Israel to continue in their sin. That would have been a lack of love. And so he did what was necessary to stop it. And that's to end that sin. You know, look, I, I I realize, I'm even from my own heart, you know, I've been haven't been in ministry that long, I guess, but it's been twelve years of full-time pastoral ministry. Um, and even for me, it, it is hard sometimes to wrap my mind around this. But but he did not punish his people because he's this like hard-hearted, mean, or cold, like distant God. He, he did this because he loved them. He wanted what was best for them. And because he is so, so good. And I don't think I understood this as much until um, I had a, a child. I have a son who is four and a half years old. And, and then I started to understand um, discipline. And why sometimes, you know, timeouts or, or, or spankings need to happen. But I think we all understand this because we actually do expect this behavior out of good earthly fathers, don't we? We expect them to discipline. If, if they have children that disobey, if, if they have children that go astray, if they have children that are, are moving in the wrong direction, a good father, we wouldn't define a good father as someone who just let them go. Oh, yeah, you want to keep disobeying and do whatever you want? Go, go ahead. Just go on your own. You're on your own. I'm not going to do anything about it. No. A good father intervenes in that situation, right? A good father gets in the way. A good father corrects. A good father disciplines, knowing that they know 
he knows what is best for their children, right? They, that a good father sets their children back on the straight and narrow path. And that's exactly what God does for us. That's exactly what he was doing for Israel. Look, God intended to save his people. We know that. It's a promise from the very beginning. And, and we know he does eventually make a way back to him for the Israelites. It happens 68 years later, actually, specifically. Okay. But before that happens, he needed their hearts to be ready to listen to him once again. And so he allowed pain and suffering to enter into their lives. He wounded them. He takes responsibility for this, actually. Even though the Babylonian army is the one who physically did it, God says, I did this to you. Why? To peel back the hardened calluses that had covered their hearts. This was all part of his good plan. And if you are a follower of Jesus here today, similarly, everything, everything in your life, somehow and in some way, is also part of God's plan for his good purposes in and through your life. He does not enjoy your struggle. He's not pleased with your pain-filled tears. But, but, those tears are producing something good in you. And it all comes from the good heart of a God, a Father, who loves you. So, do you see now how what we think about God is the most important thing about us? What you believe about God, who he is, what is his character, is the most important thing about you. Do you see how what we believe about him actually informs our pain and our suffering? We have a God who is unendingly merciful, steadfast in his loving faithfulness, a God who is supremely good. And how can we actually be certain of that today? How can we be sure that the God of Lamentations, a book that was written 2,500 87-something years ago. How can we be sure that the God of Lamentations is the same God, that same God, today? The answer is simple. Look at the cross. For it's at the cross where we see God's ultimate, unending mercy, His steadfast love, His great faithfulness, and His supreme goodness. At the cross, we see God's mercy in dying to save those who deserve only judgment and eternal punishment. At, at the cross, we see God's unwavering love in losing his life that we might gain true life. At the cross, we see his faithfulness in keeping his promises to love us based on his commitment to us, not our commitment to him. Thank you, Jesus. And, and at the cross, we see his goodness in that he is willing to forgive rebellious sinners. But not only just forgive us, he is so good that he actually makes us his own and makes a way for us to be with him, not just now, but forever. So today, if all seems lost, the message of the cross is there is hope. If all is dark, the message of the cross is there is hope. If there seems to be no end to your present pain and suffering, the message of the cross is there is hope. You are stuck today in a repeated failure, a repeated sin. There is hope. Our city is in despair. People are walking away from the Lord in numbers we haven't seen. There's hope. There's brokenness in one of your friendships. Maybe it's your marriage. There's hope. You have a loved one that is fallen, sick. There's hope. Hear me now as we close. 
hear these encouraging words from Pastor Tim Keller. I think he sums this up really, really well, what I'm trying to get to today. He says this, We may hear our hearts say, It's hopeless. But, we should argue back. We should say, Well, that depends what you were hoping in. Was that the right thing to put so much hope in? Notice how the psalmist in Psalm 42 analyzes his own hopes. Why are you so cast down, O my soul? And notice that he admonishes himself. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him. The psalmist is talking to his heart, telling it to go to God, looking to God. Church family, hope springs forth from truth rehearsed, from truth recalled. So what message are you preaching to your own heart today? What message are you preaching to yourself today? Especially in times of despair, in seasons of pain and struggle, let me encourage you to preach to your heart what is real, what is true, and what is right. You want to thrive in your suffering? Call to mind who God is and call to mind what he has done. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, therefore, I will hope in him. Let me pray for you. Jesus, thank you uh, for coming to live a life that we could never live. Uh, thank you that you died a death that we deserve to die. Thank you that three days after that death, buried in a tomb, you rose victorious so that we could have life, eternal life, now and forever. God, my hope, my hope should be rooted in who you are and what you have done and what you promised to do. But there are so many times I fail. God, forgive us when we don't look to you. Forgive us when we define our, our, our current joy and, and, and peace and happiness and hope in our present circumstances and situations, not in things of you and your kingdom. Help us once again to reset our lives on you, your truth, and your gospel. Help us to know that your love never ends. That your mercy, there's, there's no bottom to it. That we have fresh grace being offered to us every single day. And in light of that reality, may we once again, may our hearts once again say, from the depths of our being, may we all here say, great is your faithfulness. Not just words, not just empty words. May that be the truth of our hearts. May it be true that, the oh Lord, you are our portion. You are our all in all. There's no one like you, God. There's never been anyone like you. There's never going to be anyone like you. May we say the Lord is our portion.
and therefore we have hope. In Jesus' name we pray.